Hello and welcome to Cerebral Conversations. I'm Andy McLean. And I'm Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode seven. In this episode, Andy and I speak with award-winning actor, writer, speaker and disability advocate, Emily Dash. That's right, Ben. Emily is the definition of a multi-threat artist and it would take us an entire episode just to go through all of her accomplishments on stage, screen and behind the camera. Yeah, and just thinking about our conversation, Andy, what really stuck out for me during our talk with Emily is that you do get a greater understanding of what is possible when you have the right support network in place. Once you have that network, you're able to be a self-advocate, you're able to live life inclusively and independently, and ultimately, I think, to the fullest. Yeah, and to be honest, Ben, what stuck out for me was just trying not to be starstruck because Emily is an incredible actor in her own right and the people that she's worked alongside is like kind of a who's who of great Australian actors it's just extraordinary so she's really living proof that it's possible to overcome barriers to employment with a disability and have an exciting fulfilling career of your own choosing a hundred percent Andy so without further ado here is our conversation with Emily enjoy Emily, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Emily, I just wanted to start off by asking you, what kind of cerebral palsy do you have? So I have spastic quadriplegial cerebral palsy. Um, I was born three months premature and it came from Okay, and how does that sort of manifest itself for you, Emily, in terms of your daily life? In terms of daily life, my cerebral palsy kind of affects everything. So I'm a full-time wheelchair user, um, electric wheelchair, but I also um, do require support with every aspect of daily living, things like eating, dressing, personal care, uh, getting around in the community and stuff like that. But it doesn't stop me from doing all the things I want to do. Okay. And you, you've talked about how it doesn't stop you. And uh, that's kind of an understatement because I think you've packed more into your life than most people do in an entire life. One of the things I'm really interested in, em Emily, is the acting and the writing. How did you get started with all of that? It's quite extraordinary. It's quite a story. Um, I did a Bachelor of Honours in Sociology and Gender Studies, and I received first class honours in Sociology. And if you know anything about academic study, you know that getting first class honours kind of destroys your social life and all other aspects of your life. So. By the time I achieved that, because I went straight from school to uni, by the time I was done with uni, I was ready for um, a break. Um, and so I took a year off and I had offers from the university to go back and do more academic study and teaching and things like that. But I took a year off and I decided that I wanted to get back into pursuing my creative practice. And I started looking for opportunities. I didn't really know 
where to look, but I found a accessible dance class for people with disabilities. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. And so I signed up for this dance class. And when I told my mom that I'd signed up for a dance class, she said, I think you have strengths in other areas. And I said, well, thanks, mom, but I want to do this, so I'm going to go and do this. So I did. At the end of the class, the person that was teaching the class asked me if I'd ever done drama because a local inclusive theatre company was looking for some new actors with disability. And I said, no, you know, I've never really done drama, but I would love to. So I joined this theatre company, did my first show at Carriage Works. And then from there, I started sort of making my own work and doing all that stuff. So the rest is history after that, I suppose. Tell me about the moment in time where you, you felt like you'd found, you know, your calling or, or your passion. You were, you know, you mentioned that you attended the, the dance class. Was that the moment you knew that that's what you wanted to do? It was definitely the moment that I started getting excited about possibilities. I think that opening night on the Carriage Works show was pretty exciting. And that was kind of maybe the moment that I was like, oh, maybe I want to do this for a career. But yeah, I think with every project, you sort of have a different moment where you're like, yeah, this is kind of where I'm meant to be. Right. So acting came first and then writing. Is that the order that it went in or? No, so I've been writing um, since I was 12 years old, but in terms of pursuing professionally, I joined the theatre company as cast, and then they sort of realised, I, I think I wrote a monologue, and they kind of realised that I had a passion, perhaps some sort of talent for writing, yeah, it went from there. Writing came first. People ask me, you know, which I like better. And the thing is that they give you different things. It's the same as, you know, asking me whether I like film and TV or theatre better. They give you different things. Presumably, the one helps the other, right? So as an actor, you're a better actor for having written and, and vice versa when it comes to the writing. Absolutely. It's also easier to remember lines if you're the one that wrote them. <laughs> That's true. And I'm sure this is a question you get asked all the time. How do you remember all the lines, especially when it's live on stage and the pressure's really on? It's an interesting question. I actually think, you know, I've always had quite a good memory, um, even when I was at school studying and things. So. It's interesting for me, and I think it's partly because I can't write things down. So my brain sort of adapts in a way that's going to help me because I can't write things down. I don't know. It's kind of weird. 
I have a really good memory. So that's never been an issue for me. You know, it, it is all just about repetition. So when I wrote my short play that I wrote that was called Freefall, I became completely obsessed with learning lines and would just run the whole show and make my friends and support workers be the other character and just like keep going and keep going until I had the lines down. Thinking about your career today and maybe especially those early years from that first uh, carriage work performance, can you talk a little bit about some of the obstacles you've encountered along the way and maybe some of the, the tactics that you've used for tackling these? Definitely. <laughs> there have been a lot of obstacles along the way. I think the first and the kind of overriding obstacle is this idea of attitudinal barriers as people with disabilities. You know, physical barriers can sort of be, you know, we can work around them, but it's those attitudinal barriers that really are the ones we come up against and causes exclusion and discrimination and all those things. So yeah, I think I didn't even know early on in my career if there was a place for me in this industry that I was so excited about being a part of. I didn't know if there was a place for me to have a sustainable career in that so I was kind of cautious I guess and didn't really know how long I'd stick around spoiler alert I stuck around um I I think one of the important things that really helped me in those early years is really having the confidence to build our relationships and to work with the people who can get you where you want to go and you might not even know where that is i certainly didn't but it's being open to the people who are around you and seeing what skills they have that can help you take opportunities and be open to opportunities and things like that. So yeah, it really was for me just about trying new things and being open to the people who are in my corner, I guess. Absolutely. Just going back to some of those influences that you've had along the way, have there been any mentors that you've um, established those relationships with, whether formally or informally? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to give a shout out to Dean Watson, who was uh, the movement director on my first show at Carriage Works. He was also the one that encouraged me to kind of strike out on my own and start making my own films and writing my own stuff. So he's been a real asset to me. Alison Evans, who for a while used to work at Roselle Neighborhood Center, 
was really instrumental in in those early kind of years of my career in that community art space we made shows together and that was great and also i would say kylie harris who used to work um with cpa and we used to be part of a company called can you see me theater which has since become midnight feast when people talk about diversity and inclusion and opportunity one of the things that i quite often hear is that in order to aspire to be on stage to, to to be a professional writer for example you need to see role models you need to see examples of people like you doing that have you had any of those sorts of role models to kind of aspire to or to look at for an, an example and inspiration absolutely 100 percent. people like daniel muggs you know is a peer of mine in my industry and I really looked up to him. He's a, um, a disabled artist who has done a lot of stuff nationally and internationally. And I really aspired to that when I was early on in my career. But yes, there are an amazing array of disabled artists. We have a great community of artists and I'm thrilled to kind of be a part of that and we're not going anywhere let's move on to i guess career highlights and stuff emily of which i know there's a number for you but when you look back on on the past few years your experience on stage screen and and writing what are some of the things that you look back on most fondly couple of things making my first film i'm not a work of art which is the first film I made, uh, you know, wrote by myself. That was a really extraordinary experience. You know, being shortlisted for Trot Fest, that was pretty cool. We didn't make the finals, but we got shortlisted. And, you know, more recently, making my film Groundhog Night, which has been screened nationally and internationally, I. I just got nominated. Unfortunately, I didn't win, but I got nominated for Best Achievement in Screenplay at the St Kilda Film Festival. And, you know, from an advocacy kind of perspective, something that really sticks out for me recently is I won what's called a RAD Advocacy Award for work that I've done with a charity called Young Care. Um, and what was special about that award is that I was able to share it with uh, Margot Robbie, the Hollywood actress. And um, she was also the one that presented that award to me. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> so Emily, tell me, how did that make you feel when Margot Robbie announced that you were the winner alongside her for that award? It was, it was a very extraordinary moment. And it was the weeks leading up to that, you know, it had been quite a weird time because I'd been told that there was something big happening, but they didn't want to tell me what it was because they wanted that surprise factor. 
so it was really quite bizarre. I was like, I feel like I'm being tapped for like the CIA or something because they would not tell me anything about what was happening. And then I had just kind of convinced myself it was nothing that I was making mountains out of molehills or whatever. But I'd been told that I was being interviewed by a journalist just for a random interview. It's like, that's fine. What's the big deal with that, right? And then, so I'm waiting on Zoom in the little, like, Zoom waiting room thing. And the white screen, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. All of a sudden, Margot Robbie pops up. I was so starstruck that I just sort of reverted to, like, the absolute pure version of myself. So I just went, like, hello, how are you going? Like, there was no, like, pretense whatsoever on either side. So it was, it was a really magical, magical moment. And she's just so lovely. And to, like, have someone of that caliber with that kind of reach for people to be involved in any sort of disability advocacy is really quite extraordinary. And to be able to share that award with her was a great honour. It's quite a story. And Margot Robbie's just one of the illustrious names that you've worked with. And I have to ask a fanboy question here. Robin Nevin is uh, somebody I've seen on stage and screen for years. And you managed to secure her for Groundhog Night, which you wrote and starred in yourself. So I just wondered, how did that come about? And what was it like working with her? Yes, and believe me, I was perfectly aware of that when I was doing it. You know, I wrote this script and sent it to Bus Stop Films and they agreed to produce it for me. And um, the director of my film, who was also in it, Genevieve Clay Smith, has been, you know, she's been making films for quite a long time, successful and well-known in the industry. So she knows a lot of people. And so when it came to um, casting for the film, she sent me an email with all of the people that she wanted to be in my film. And she was like, and I thought we'd get Robin Megan for Rose. And I was like, okay, great, yes, let's do that. <laughs> and like in my head, I'm going, oh my God, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, but it was really extraordinary. We also had a, a the rest of the cast was also really great. People like John Batbar and Susan Pryor, Chris Hayward. So we had a real, really extraordinary cast. And working with a cast like that, you learn so much. But also, believe me, in your head, you're like, oh my goodness, I better bring my A game here because you know, this is an opportunity that I'm not going to get ever again, really. So yeah, it was, it was a really special, and all of those people were just so generous, and uh, 
welcoming. You made it really easy for me. We just want to find out a little bit more about um, the kind of origin of Groundhog Night, Emily, and, and where did the idea come from? Yeah, so that's a bit of a story too. Um, what I like to tell people is that Groundhog Night is not a true story, but it is a very real story. And what I mean by that is that a lot of what you see in the film and the things that people have said to me and things like this are things that have actually happened to me. So it was drawn from my own personal experience and my family dynamics and, you know, the kind of close family that they have. But, yeah, I think what we really wanted to do is show the both the funny side of disability and the poignant side of disability. And I, I think we strike that balance quite well. Um, in terms of the actual origin story of where it came from, you know, I can't roll over by myself in the night. So if I need to roll over, as you see in the film, I call out to my parents, they come in, they're half asleep, they roll me over, they go back to bed. You know, it's a habit. They barely even wake up. Um, which generally works totally fine. Except one night, my maternal grandparents, who I'm very close to, um, came to stay. They are nothing like the grandparents in the film, but they came to stay and they stayed in my room. And so I shared a room with my sister. And that night I was calling out for a really long time. Nobody came. I called out again. Nobody came. And then I hear this, John, John, that's my, my grandfather's name. And what's happened is my dad in his half asleep state has gone into my room and tried to roll my grandmother over so his mother-in-law <laughs> and uh yeah so that's where groundhog came from even before i was an artist we were sitting around the dinner table and like that would make a really great film <laughs> yeah well it's funny you know because the, these things so often it, they come from life experience don't they and growing up uh, my grandfather was disabled and it was funny because I was watching it. It kind of resonated with me both in terms of the family dynamics and everybody can recognize those, but also having someone in the family who's disabled and just having those moments of humor and, 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 and levity as well, you know, it, that, that yeah. really, really kind of hit home for me as well. So it's kind of doubly funny, really. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you so much. Emily, tell me about your creative process, especially when you're writing your poetry. What does that look like? It kind of, people ask me about my process and I don't really know what to say to people because, you know, I definitely write from personal experience and particularly with poetry. Often I'll just, um, you know, it'll be something that's really affecting me emotionally that I just have to get down paper. And a lot of my poetry 
you know, never sees a light of day because it's very personal and very deep and dark and secret. But yeah, it really is that thing of just needing to get something down on paper and then, you know, a particular rhythm or a rhyme or something might come to me and I might write that down and then, you know, it kind of expands from there. It's quite an organic, beautiful process. In the case of my first short film, I'm No Work of Art, began, as you probably noticed, as a spoken word performance piece. I got asked to write something about discrimination for this multi-art form exhibition, I think for accessible arts. And um, I just started writing as prose all of the experiences that I thought could inform this piece. And then I went back and went, oh, that could make a good poem. Oh, you know, so it really was this kind of like, beautiful organic process that I wish I could replicate more than I can, but it doesn't happen like, like that. <laughs> can you tell me, because your energy, your enthusiasm, your drive, it's unbelievable. So you've gone from, you know, acting on stage, writing, you're doing short films. What's, what's next for Emily Dash? It's a pretty exciting question because we are actually looking at developing Roundhog Night into a television series. We're hoping that will happen at some stage very soon because I think the character dynamics in that short film, people really responded to them. We've had a great response to the film and we thought, Maybe the story's not over yet, so we'll see. That's hilarious because just before you came on the call, Emily, practically the last thing that Ben said to me, this is absolutely true, he said, you know, this would make a great series. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we're producing that now too, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, watch this space and we'll see what comes out of that. Can't wait to see it. Also working on a couple web series as well. One that's currently in development with SBS um, through the Digital Originals program. Um, it's called Freewheelers, so look out for that. Yeah, I'm doing quite a lot. <laughs> Obviously, you've talked a little bit about the mentors that you've had and, and the role models. Yeah you're kind of becoming a bit of a role model yourself, right? There'll be younger people coming through, looking at what you've done and thinking, I'd like a piece of that too. They may have cerebral palsy, they may not. But if you had advice for any aspiring writers or actors out there, maybe particularly those with cerebral palsy, what would your advice be for them? My advice, and I love this question, and it's, it's something that I take really seriously. My advice, I think, would be to genuinely just go after what you want, even if you think that there's not a space for you or that, you know, you don't know how to do something. The thing is, 
sometimes it's just about thinking about things a little bit differently. And particularly if you live with disability, I don't know if other people find this, but I find that we spend a lot of our time, you know, figuring out how to do things a little bit differently. So you're already doing it. You're already demonstrating the skill that you need. And it's just about finding what your passion is. As I said, being open to those opportunities and just really enjoying yourself because it's gotta be a little bit fun. So have fun with everything too, I think would be my advice. My final question, which is actually just something that Ben talks about on another podcast that he, he's on, which is Slow Your Home podcast. A question they quite often ask their guests is your why? Like, do you have like a kind of a, a philosophy for life or a reason for getting out of bed in the morning? Could you encapsulate it neatly, do you think? So one day I was at a theatre performance with um, my friend, Julie McCrossan, and um, we were, we decided that we were getting ice cream at intermission. And that all sounded really great and nice until I discovered that it's very hard to feed someone ice cream without making a very large mess. So, you know, we're laughing and, you know, trying to get me cleaned up before the lights went down again. And I, she said she admired my determination in eating the ice cream. And I told her it was kind of like my life. And she said, what do you mean? And out of nowhere, I said, life is like eating an ice cream. It's often difficult, sometimes messy, but always enjoyable if you can find the sweetness in it. And that is something I would say that is like my life motto from then on out. So there you go. Amazing. Emily, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and uh, all the very best for your future projects thank you so much thank you you've been listening to cerebral conversations a podcast produced by cerebral palsy alliance to learn more check out the show notes to this episode over at cerebralpalsy.org.au forward slash cerebral conversations and if you enjoyed the show please rate or review on your favourite podcast platform. And to join the conversation, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. The music for this podcast was kindly supplied by Ocean Alley. Check out the band's music on Bandcamp or visit oceanalley.com.au.